What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says it's a long way to temporary. Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today... Yes, Joe? We're going to be starting the first part of a two-part episode. Yeah, this is a topic so big it could not be contained within a single show. And really, we just kept finding notes, like right before we came in here and sat down, we were like, oh no, there's more, there's so much more. Well, it is a somewhat mind-bending topic. Oh, Quite uh, quite epic in scope, it turns out. But so, to set the scene for what we're going to talk about today, I want to have a little a little uh, mind experiment. All right. Okay. Think of yourself. No, easy. <laughs> I know it's easy for you, Jonathan. But who? I mean, think about what you think okay. when you think of yourself. Uh-huh. There's sort of like a thing you have in your mind. It's your personality, your traits, the things that you, the ways you would describe yourself in your OkCupid profile. <laughs> If you're being honest, I guess. I and, okay. And, and if I'm no longer afraid of my wife. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but there's sort of a problem with playing this game because mm-hmm. we like to think of ourselves as sort of dependable and unchanging. Sure. Like we are who we are and we think each of our personalities is sort of one fixed eternal feature of the universe. Mm-hmm. There's There's Jonathan and he's who Jonathan is. But deep down, we sort of all know it's not really like that, right? I mean, human thought and behavior is sometimes disturbingly malleable. Yeah. So to some extent, we can change what kinds of people we are. You can form new habits and break old ones. And uh, experiences, you know, can change the way you would react in any given situation. Uh, We can take steps to change ourselves. And it's easy to see how since we can change ourselves, we could probably also take steps to change other people. Or have other people 
change us. Exactly right. And so like most other measurable phenomena in the world, deliberate methods of changing human thought and behavior are things that can be studied scientifically. And right now we might not know a whole lot about this field, but we will probably know more and more as time goes on. So that brings me to today's topic, Mm -hmm. mind control. Yeah. Will it be a thing in the future? (laughs) Is it a thing now? Right. How reliable will the science of controlling human thought and behavior become? Right. Is this a thing that's good or bad for humanity? I mean, obviously, the the sort of implication is that it's bad. But what what are all the ways we could look at it? Right. Um, and how's it going to play out? Yeah. And this is something that uh, uh, I really enjoy reading about in science fiction because obviously, oh, yeah. you know, so many novels that warn us against this kind of stuff, right? And a lot of them are that really good dystopian sort of novel that's just so much fun to read. Yeah. Well, right, because that's the ultimate type of oppression that's imagined in mm-hmm. in these dystopian futures, right? It's not just that you are sort of physically constrained and imprisoned and threatened. It's that your very sense of self is threatened. Yeah, yeah. That it's, it, it's, the, it's state, that, uh, the state changes who you are. Oh, uh, right, right. It's, it's that you're physically constrained and you're happy about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you don't know not to be happy about it mm-hmm. or why you would ever be unhappy about it. Yeah, so just as some examples, as obviously anyone who has delved into science fiction would be aware of these, but uh, Orwell's 1984 is a great example. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this is set in a society that is so steeped in propaganda uh, that that its citizens are trained in the art of doublethink. Yes. Holding two contradictory thoughts at the same time. Uh, also, doublethink. And believing them both. And believing them both. And doublethink actually has a couple of different um, um, uses in the book. But, for example, you might be told uh, that, let's say, that uh, war means peace. That's, that's a, a, a simple example. And in the classic sense of doublethink, not only would you think that war means peace, but that eventually the concept of war would completely change so that when you think the word war, you're thinking what of the concept peace. That that takes on a brand new meaning and that it becomes the reality from that point forward. So really it's about how this, uh, this, this despotic government really is defining reality and enforcing that reality among citizens. And if you don't play along, you get in trouble. And most people play along because, you know, that's, that's what they're told to do. They're, they're kind of, uh, you know, they're kind of just, just cogs in a wheel at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, there's also a, um, and a, a manufactured disparity between the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows, where there are very small percentage of people are a very, very small percentage of people are in the upper class, a slightly larger, but still pretty small percentage of people are in the middle class and then everyone else. And, uh, the main character is in, um, uh, sort of the, the, uh, the upper class in a sense, like kind of he's in the middle class slash upper class area. Um, and things do not go well for him. But then we also have uh, Anthony Burgess's uh, Clockwork Orange. Right. So there you've got this kind of sense of at least seemingly benevolent mind control, right? It's implemented as a crime reduction initiative, essentially. Yeah. They, they take a young man who is, by all accounts, not a nice guy. No, he is truly reprehensible. Yeah. yeah. But they do some techniques on him. I think it's a combination of of drugs and then behavioral conditioning. Yeah, it's aversion therapy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. to force him to have a a very visceral negative reaction to any form of violence. Yeah. Uh, Essentially, all the things that he absolutely adored when he was on his own uh, and could be the free-willing sociopath that he was have now turned into triggers to make him feel, feel violently ill. Uh, even so going so far as the music that he used to love, which is actually, that's kind of the breaking point for him is not mm-hmm. so much the, the violence, uh, his, his inability to choose to be violent, but the music has been taken from him as well. And, uh, what's interesting to me about this book is that the American version for the longest time left off the final chapter, um, uh, chapter 21. So it ended with chapter 20 where the main character, Alex, regains his ability to make 
choices to be a terrible, terrible person. And so it's kind of left up to the reader to wonder whether or not it was better to remove his ability to choose to be evil, thus, you know, kind of removing part of his humanity uh, and no or and that way he could not commit wrong. Or was it better to allow him the ability to commit wrong, knowing that that was a potential outcome? Uh, yeah, that that old question of whether without the the capacity to to do evil, anyone can ever truly be good. Yeah, and yeah. so uh, chapter twenty one negates that question. <laughs> <laughs> chapter twenty one, <laughs> Alex grows up, and essentially Burgess's point was kind of like, ah, you know, people grow out of it. You know, you can be a sociopathic teenager, but eventually you mature, and then you realize, oh, I was kind of a jerk, <laughs> and so I don't know if you grow out of just driving around murdering people that's what that's what chapter 21 says well well that's a nice thought yeah that's why i I mean one can hope i kind of prefer (laughs) chapter the one that does not have chapter 21 in it um in the because of that reason and uh so then we've got uh aldous huxley's brave new world And, and the reason i group these three together is all three deal with a a world in which the government is trying to impose a particular order in the world. Mm-hmm. And in this case, uh, you've got a government that actually an entire society that has evolved to the point where everything is predetermined for everybody. Yeah. So as soon as uh, as you have a fertilized egg, then genetic tests determine where that fertilized egg is going to end up within that society, whether it will be a uh, uh, uh in their caste system, whether it'll be in the uh, upper castes or lower castes, lower castes are actually genetically and chemically altered so that they have a limit to the amount of intelligence that they can have. Uh, their their physical capabilities are limited as well. And so it's a very restrictive world. And uh, and again, we the the character's journey is one of discovery about how the world that they didn't know was oppressive, how oppressive it actually was. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the main characters in Brave New World, uh, they, they might live a very sort of like placid and comfortable existence in mm-hmm. a way, but that it could be seen as without having the true vitality of life. Uh, and they sort the, of discover the romantic worldview. Uh, right, right. The the passion of being able to completely mess yourself up. Yeah. Yeah. But, of course, we don't have systems like this in the real world. I mean, you you might get some people out there saying, like, no, man, we're living in 1984. Come on. Open your eyes, sheeple. (laughs) (laughs) Well. (laughs) We we don't really have, like, like full mind control methods bearing down on us, especially not ones that are uh, deliberately controlled and studied. Uh, we we have culture, yeah, and one could in fact look at culture as an elaborate mind control method, but it's something that arose naturally out of you know just human behavior over hundreds of years, not not a deliberate and scientifically informed attempt to control how people in various regions of the world would think. That's right. what our vampire overlords want you to think. <laughs> well, Joe. And there's also of course the uh the the attempts to manipulate that culture, to actually leverage elements of that culture in order to uh get public opinion thinking one thing or another. So it's it's while it's true that the uh the cultural element is is certainly more prevalent than any kind of science fictiony attempt to control people on an individual basis. That cultural element is something that not only are we aware of, but we try to uh, exploit. And by we, I mean various various people. humans. Yeah, not, not just not not just me. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are whole fields of study outside of Jonathan Strickland uh, <laughs> that are devoted to figuring out, uh, you know, h- how to influence actions and decisions, either to to make the stuff that we have more efficient for us to use or to, you know, profit businesses that want to sell us stuff. Yep. Or profit governments that want to sell us ideas. Well, yep. exactly right. I think that's one of the reasons that if you're looking at the the most old fashioned forms of mind control and sort of the science of influencing behavior and thought and, and emotion and opinion, one of the first places to look is advertising and propaganda. Right. Oh, sure. And really, the two are so hand in hand related. I mean, 
in many, many ways. So uh, propaganda, we'll, we'll start with that. And that's defined as usually a biased or misleading information used to sway public opinion on a matter. It's not necessarily misleading. Like, could it be propaganda if it if it doesn't say any facts that aren't true? It could certainly be propaganda by presenting true facts, but not presenting all the facts. I mean, propaganda. But that's still misleading. Yeah, it can. Yeah. You could argue it's misleading. Yes. And you could argue also that biased doesn't necessarily mean nefarious. But it does mean that there is you – know, you don't use propaganda for an unbiased reason. <laughs> the, the bias is why the propaganda exists in the first place, Yeah, right? You're selling an idea and in order to do that, that means that you have a side already, right? You're not like war might or might not be good. You decide. That's not propaganda <laughs> or at least not effective propaganda. Wouldn't that be great if that was like how all the campaign commercials worked is it was like, you know, yeah. here are some candidates. I don't know. Make up your own mind. Now I want a that parallel. Would be beautiful. I think it'd be great to have a parallel universe where everything like everything when it comes to public relations and, and propaganda and all that sort of stuff is just incredibly unbiased and mediocre. <laughs> just yeah. see how far that world gets along. <laughs> At any rate, uh, this this idea has been around for a while, guys. It's not uh, the word propaganda really got got going in the early 20th century. But the concept of using this means of communicating to a people that have a common base of knowledge and a common set of interests dates back to ancient times. Yeah, well, I mean, look at any ancient uh mesopotamian carving or something yeah. you know like de- or depicting like one of the rulers of ancient egypt mm-hmm. or something like that it's propaganda it's there oh, to yeah. show you how powerful and glorious this leader is sure and it's and, not necessarily there to give you an accurate recounting of the facts of history well and to be fair also you know you're not going to find this on a lot of civilizations that didn't have that common set of knowledge if the peoples were scattered so much then it just the communication to the people was something that was necessary for propaganda to work ah uh, right know? well you don't need propaganda if you don't have a centralized body of government that's that's true but you also don't need propaganda if i mean you can't have propaganda if you can't directly in some way, communicate communicate with your people. So uh, ancient Greece is a great example. The Athenians were subjected to propaganda in things like theatrical productions or religious Mm. festivities. Uh, Also, even just athletic games, the things like the Olympics could become propaganda for Greece. But beyond the ancient world, you know, we get into kind of a more, uh, I don't know, deliberate approach to propaganda than Simply, hey, we're great, and those other guys over the hill over there, they're not so great. Uh, you get to the time of uh, Philip II of Spain and Queen Elizabeth of England. They had a little propaganda war about a thing called the Spanish Armada. Mm-hmm. Spain was like, look how awesome our armada is, and never uh, actually said, by the way, we were completely defeated in 1588. That totally... Yeah, they were, they never acknowledged it in Spain <laughs> at the time anyway. Uh, whereas in England, uh, in fact, I think it was Sir Walter Raleigh who later on wrote that he was disgusted by how Spain had uh, presented the Spanish Armada to the Spanish population as if the defeat in 1588 huh. had never happened. Oh, wow. Uh, whereas I'm thinking like, you know, come on, Queen Elizabeth, she was pretty savvy on the the ways of communicating to the english public as well so oh sure yeah if it had gone the other way i'm pretty sure yeah the england would be like oh we totally don't know <laughs> whatever yeah, it was a little tiff would you would you argue that at some point like like shakespeare was a propagandist you know uh he certainly was in a way because the reason he wrote the scottish play was uh to... <laughs> we're not in theater you can you can I, say I kept it all right all right uh, when he wrote uh, the Thane of Cawdor's play, <laughs> um, when he wrote Macbeth, he he m- made sure to do a couple of things. First of all, uh, that's when James I was now king of England. He wanted to make his line look good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the line of kings presentation in Macbeth, the last king was thought, at least in, in scholarship, to have held up a mirror and pointed it toward King James. Wow. To suggest that James himself is the descendant of, of this line mm-hmm. that uh, ends up taking over for Macbeth. Also, the play was very short compared to most of Shakespeare's plays, uh, partly, at least 
according to scholarship, due to the fact Shakespeare had heard that James I had a short attention span. And also it had witches in it, which James I was really interested in. So it, in many ways it was propaganda. Wait, is, or I can't tell if you're kidding. Is this no. a known thing? James I was into witches? He was uh, – into witches is probably the wrong way of putting it. He was very much against them. <laughs> Fascinated by them, yeah. perhaps you could say. Uh, terrified okay. perhaps uh, is another way. I mean, of course, this is a they very – early part of James the first reign. He wasn't into witches like I'm into witches. No, he was, he wasn't watching the craft at 2 a.m. every night. Okay. No, it's not like you, Joe. Okay, sorry. Oh man, I almost thought that James and I had something going there. (laughs) Yeah, well, so when we think of propaganda these days, obviously our, uh, our opinions are very much influenced by what that meant in the first half of the 20th century, yeah. like oh, World yeah. War One and Two in Europe. Uh, yeah, Great Britain in particular forged to the modern idea of propaganda during the early months of, of the Great War, as it was called then, or yeah. World War One as we know it the, now. The war to end all wars, except it totally didn't. Except yeah. it did not at all, yeah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the British government first cut off Germany's oceanic communication cables, meaning that they would lag behind in, in getting news and, and to, to, to play like press and supporters over in the United States, mm-hmm. which was huge. Um, and then in September of 1914, remember that war had only broken out in July of that year, uh, the British government set up Wellington House, which was the secret organization that called upon journalists to write things that were sympathetic to the British cause and also published its own newspapers, uh, eventually in 11 different languages with a circulation of like 500,000 copies per issue. Wow. Crazy amounts of stuff being put out there. Uh, the Chinese language version is credited by some historians as influencing public thought enough that, that China was able to declare war against Germany and not have a revolt on its hands. Wow. And the, the general idea of Wellington House was, was to create publications that seemed like they were grassroots, n- not governmental. Mm-hmm. Um, like they were published by local commercial publishers instead of government-owned presses. And and the materials were circulated not by government officials, but by like local opinion makers. Yeah, we see this come up again and again, not just in, in government propaganda, but in other uh, means of trying to sway public at- opinion. And one of the big ones is Let's try and make sure it looks like it's coming from, quote unquote, real people right? and, and not right. not a voice of authority. That way it doesn't seem authoritarian. It seems like a genuine ups, uh, you know, upwelling support for whatever idea it happens to be. Right. It's, it's like why, you know, an advertiser might want to give some of their uh, stuff to a celebrity to wear instead of like having a spokesperson say, you should wear our product. Yeah. If, if you give if you give Michael Jordan your shoes, then suddenly kids will like the shoes. Well, it yeah. looks like he's just authentically enjoying these shoes. <laughs> Which maybe he is. Maybe he's just holding the shoes up to his face and going, I really enjoy these. Yeah. (laughs) But Uh, but that certainly is exploiting something that they perceived about the way we form opinions. Yeah. Like that they picked up on the fact that people are less likely to have their mind influenced by something that they recognize as coming from a government source. Right. And and you would still get information from government sources as well. I mean, oh, like of course. Things like posters, things and songs, all this kind of stuff that would be either uh, uh, sponsored by the government or promoted through the government. Uh, and that wasn't just in the UK. Over in the United States, On we had our own version of the Wellington House. On April 13th, 1917, President Woodrow Wilson formed the Committee on Public Information. Oh, that sounds so innocuous and boring. It sounds know, right? to me like it sounds like it it almost is like two steps away from one of the, the departments in 1984. Yeah, it really does. Uh, the Committee on Public Information. He that put, would be called like the Committee for Public Truth. Yeah, or <laughs> which I said, two <laughs> steps away. Right. Uh, so he put George Creel in charge, and Creel was uh, a journalist. Some called him a muckraker. Um, he was also a proponent of, of free speech. He said, you know, free speech was really important, and obviously censorship from uh, public uh, uh Sources like government sources was completely wrong, and he did he disagreed with it. However, since he was then put in charge of this department, it became kind of his job to at least filter stuff, if not outright censor it. And in fact, there were quite a few times where they would tell people like, "You should really not publish this story; it would look bad." And they were trying to drum up the government was trying to drum up support from the American public to get involved in World War One, which was not a popular idea at the time. 
Oh, sure. To send people overseas to fight someone else's war. Yeah. Uh, which would become another issue during World War II. So part of it was uh, this idea of let's publish the stories that are going to help support public opinion to get involved and downplay the ones that would not support it. And one of the things that came out about this is kind of the idea that we see over and over again with propaganda, which is if you can control the flow of information to a people so that they only get one side of the story, then obviously it's going to be easier for you to sway a public opinion in support of that. If they're not, if they're not getting the full story, then any decision they make is going to be based upon a limited set of information. Oh, sure. That's ostensibly why countries like like China don't allow full access to the Internet. Or North Korea, mm-hmm. which is probably, uh, I would say North Korea's got this down pat with, with as far as propaganda goes. Yeah, but one thing we can say about propaganda in this period and even a lot of propaganda today is that a lot of it is still not what I would call necessarily scientifically informed. Right. It's in a lot of cases, I don't think that they've researched like what would be the most effective way to uh, get people to think the way I want them to think. They, they just kind of intuitively sense like you don't want people hearing bad things about the leadership. Well, what, <laughs> right, right. What's funny is that a lot of research actually has gone into this, although from sources that would seem unusual. Uh, for example, one of the people who was working at the CPI was a guy by the name of Edward Bernays. Ah. Yeah, he was he was really good at making people, good. people thinking what he wanted them to think. He was creepy good. <laughs> well, I guess we should transition then to talking a little bit about Edward Bernays and maybe uh, the, the overlap between propaganda and advertising, how, how that creates this mass mind control effect. Yeah, so... He was not just someone who worked in propaganda. He worked in public relations. Uh, you could argue that it's advertising, but really it was PR. He, he, his job, he saw it as, uh, he would be hired by companies to help them do whatever they did more effectively, uh, by convincing the public that whatever that company did was awesome. Sure, sure. Uh, he was born, let us say, in Vienna in 1891. Yeah. Uh, although his family did move to the United States when he was uh, just a baby, I think. He was like one year old. And, uh, his uncle, interestingly enough, was one Sigmund Freud. Yeah. It's not that interesting. I mean, come on. Sometimes, Sometimes an, an uncle, uncle is just an uncle. uncle. Oh. Oh. I saw where you were going a mile away, and I approve, sir. Uh, yeah, so Freud, obviously, uh, very influential to, to Bernays. Bernays was, so, depending upon whom you read, some people say, well, he was a genius because he was able to study psychology and sociology and then incorporate those ideas directly into a practical approach when it came to PR. Mm-hmm. Other people said, no, he was more of a guy who could just cut and paste cool ideas that a lot of other people had come up with and just put them together in a new format that was really effective. So, again, in my mind, that's still genius. Either way, he was real effective. Yeah. So <laughs> here's some stories about ways he was able to change public opinion. And the first one is probably the most famous that he's associated with, which was getting women to smoke uh, in public specifically Lucky Strike Cigarettes. So Lucky Strike Cigarettes had hired him saying, we want to sell more cigarettes. And he was looking around at the potential markets. And one large untapped market was females. Mm-hmm. And it's because, well, a couple reasons. Uh, one, The biggest one is the, the social stigma that was against women smoking in public. Mm-hmm. It was considered vulgar. Sure, sure. And and this, I we should put in, was in the 1920s? Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, there's also, by the way, a series of stuff they don't want you to know uh, videos that explains uh, all of the things that Bernays got up to, which yeah. I highly recommend you check out. But the um, the the other issue, slightly more uh, uh, frivolous, I would say, is that the color green, which is what the Lucky Strikes uh, packaging was, it was a, this, this dark green color, that it, it was not seen as fashionable, and therefore women were less likely to purchase them, even if they did uh, uh see that smoking in public wasn't uh, this this stigmatized activity. I don't quite get that. Well, like it, there was a time when just green was out. Yeah. It yeah. just was not it was not a thing. It, it happens. A, so he okay. did he did a, his his attack was multi-pronged. Uh one of those was to get people to change their opinion about the color green and so he started to <laughs> he started to uh Chat with some of his buddies who were fashion designers, people like uh, people who were designing fashions in France. 
and convincing them to add green into the fashion lines for the following season. So the Parisian fashions that were coming out were incorporating this color of green. So suddenly green was seen as a, a very fashionable color. But that still so doesn't crazy. still doesn't <laughs> still doesn't address the other problem, right? About women speaking oh, in public. Sure. But luckily there was this whole uh women's suffragette yeah, movement going on. There was a whole women's lib thing, you know, that needed to that was t- picking up steam and he thought, "Hey, I'm going to leverage this this movement to work to my benefit." He ended up uh convincing several uh women who were involved in the women's liberation movement to do organize a march while smoking lucky strike cigarettes as a way of saying they were they were um it was like kind of an empowerment uh uh symbol right the idea that the women were the equals to men that they could do the same things men could do including smoking in public yes do what you want get cancer whatever you want and they were even calling them torches for freedom oh my uh... that's what the cigarettes were being referred to as and this combination really helped swing things so that women were uh, buying cigarettes and smoking in public. And it, you could argue that in part it helped change some uh, public perception of women, but in, it got them smoking. <laughs> so it's not like it's it's not like it's a win win all around. Um, but that's not the only thing he he's responsible for. Like there are other big, big Things. Like big cultural level things. Well, yeah. Hold on. Are you saying Bernays is the reason that bacon isn't a sometimes food? Bernays is the reason that <laughs> he's – I'm not saying he's the reason that bacon has now become an all the times food. That really has to do with Brooklyn, with, New with, York. No, it has to do with <laughs> bumper stickers and stupidity. It started with hipsters and ended up kind of boiling out from there. So I'm but, going to the source there. But yeah, no, yeah. Bernays, Bernays was – um. He was hired by a company that, among other things, produced bacon, mm-hmm. and they wanted to be able to sell more bacon. So he ended up writing, uh, as as the Stuff They Don't Want You to Know episode says, a carefully worded letter to about <laughs> 5,000 doctors asking what would be more healthy for people, a hearty breakfast or a light breakfast. As far as I know, he didn't actually use the word bacon in either of those. Then, then he said... Um, where he launched a public relations campaign that said 4,500 physicians agree that a breakfast, a hearty breakfast of bacon and eggs is best for you and ended up in, uh, creating this market for bacon to become a breakfast food in the yeah. United States. The reason that we eat bacon for breakfast here in the U.S. is Edward Bernays. That's it. Yeah. So the things he was that he started to do have become essentially the the like to do list for PR firms these days. So he actually sort of had a something approaching a more scientific methodology for figuring out how to change people's minds about I don't know what you eat for breakfast yeah. or when you should smoke cigarettes. He was he was looking at things that tended that, that would tend to influence people mm-hmm. and then try to leverage those. So for things like an expert opinion that would be something that could end up uh, influencing someone. So he would look for experts or spokespeople who would uh, end up lending legitimate legitimacy to whatever claims he was making. Right, uh, right. I'm sure you've seen those old commercials. Some of them are on YouTube now with more doctors smoke camels, yeah. the healthier for your lungs. It just makes me think that, that Bernays would have like run circles around Don Draper. I mean, it's just like there was, there'd be no hope for Draper against Bernays. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it was it was really so brilliant because he wasn't really marketing particular branded products or even particular brands. He was marketing opinions and feelings and urges and mm. concepts. Yeah, and he was creating word of mouth campaigns, which again goes back to what we were saying before with governments about the the legitimacy seems to come from the fact that it's it's a grassroots mm-hmm. approach as opposed to something that's top down. If it looks like it's bottom up, people tend to think, "Oh, well this uh, this this is something that people really do care about, something I should care about one way or the other. It's, I think, the same reason you see so many companies today trying to uh, get, like, hashtags going on Twitter, like, get people to participate. And right. why that's so often is just a miserable, embarrassing failure. It's, yeah. It's so crude uh, if, if you're lifting it up next to next to what Bernays was doing. Because if you say to someone, hey – be interested in our product with this keyword, then you're ruining the entire experiment. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, you're showing your hand. It's it's yeah. very rare when a brand can go out there and and start using a hashtag effectively. It does happen, but it's far more common that we see these things rise up because maybe there are a couple of notable personalities who use it, and then it spreads from there. Occasionally, it's an event that happens, and then something that is. Uh, uh, directly tied to that event becomes like the zeitgeist for whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, getting back to Bernays, he actually wrote a book about his methodology. He called it Crystallizing Public Opinion. Hmm. And um, it was reprinted back in, I think, 2011. But he, he comes across as a little uh, condescending, essentially saying that the <laughs> public are dumb and they need to be led. I mean, it really, it is very much in that, that I mean, realm. To be of- fair, we are pretty dumb. What, do we need to if be If I led? can just speak for myself. Yeah. Um, and I feel like if I were standing next to Edward Bernays, I would be like, man, I'm a moron. Crap. Uh, I don't know that I'd feel dumb, but I would certainly be like, I'm not, eat- I, I'm not eating bacon anymore. Of course, <laughs> I, I haven't eaten bacon in a long time anyway, but that's not the point. So uh, apart from that one day, but that was a slip. Uh, so then there was also the, the another book he wrote called Propaganda. Uh, in which he made the case for the manipulation of public opinion as a necessary component of democracy. Of democracy, yeah, huh. that you can't have democracy unless you first tell the people what they need to vote on and oh. why they need to vote that way. Wow, uh, I'm oversimplifying. No, 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 but, but I mean, but I totally believe that that's oh, okay. That's a thing. Well, yeah. you you can look at it in a certain kind of way by saying. Uh, A democracy, if it is working properly, is only as good as its people. And if you have people in a properly functioning democracy who widely hold very bad opinions, then you're going to end up with very bad government. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's 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 definitely a tricksy subject. Yes. Uh, But Bernays was not the only person who was working in in this kind of sticky ideological matter around those times. Um, I, I wanted to talk for a moment about diamonds. And I know, because you love talking about diamonds. I do, I do. If you have either uh, watched Brain Stuff or listened to Stuff They Don't Want You to Know's podcast, then you may have heard me talk about diamonds before. Uh, but, but basically, so diamonds are the engagement ring stone of choice because of a marketing campaign created by De Beers, which is that uh, cartel, if you so choose, you could say vertical diamond mining slash accrediting slash distribution corporation. You could say monopoly. You could say monopoly. Any yeah. of those words are probably valid. Uh, around around the uh, 1930s, the demand for diamonds was falling. They were seen as, as a luxury that the average person didn't need, and they were no longer a true rarity since uh, the, the discovery of really huge deposits of them in South Africa. Uh, only about 10% of engagement rings around that time bore diamonds. And so De Beers, which had all of these diamonds was like hey nwa or ad agency can you launch us a multimedia campaign that will push diamonds onto the fingers of some 75 percent of brides in the united states by the 2000s that's actually (laughs) probably not what they said but that's what ended up happening um (laughs) they uh uh and, and we are not the only country where that occurred you know back in the early days there were fashion columns that were written by an agency representative that were not reported as being written by an agency representative that were pushing diamonds. They, they had, uh, these, these loaner programs to get jewelry onto the rich and the famous for big socialite events where these photographs would be published in newspapers or, uh, you know, whenever Marilyn Monroe was wearing diamonds in a movie, they were probably loaned to her from De Beers. Hmm. Simultaneously, they started educating the public to increase the demand for more expensive diamonds. Those four C's are completely a De Beers and W.A. collaboration. Hmm. Um, simultaneously, they were also propagating the idea that diamonds should never be resold. Thus, they were maintaining the demand for new diamonds. Um, it's completely insidious. And if you would like to hear a very long history on that, well, not very long. I mean, it's long enough. It's long enough to cover the territory. It's very thorough. It's thorough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you can check out Stuff They Don't Want You to, to Know's podcast episode from February 17th of this year, being 2015. It's yep. a good podcast. Thank and you. thorough. And, and thorough. thorough. Yes. Uh, <laughs> 
looking ahead, because now we've, you know, obviously World War II propaganda was huge. And obviously we live in an era of advertising today mm-hmm. where we are constantly surrounded by ads, whether it's in billboards or in video or in audio or on our clothing or. Yeah, there's it's it's everywhere to the point where actually there are entire people whose whose jobs depend upon how can we get over advertising blindness, where people have. Uh, developed an immunity to certain types of advertising. They just don't even, it doesn't even register with them anymore. Uh, looking ahead, like what's the future of propaganda? I found an interesting, uh, interview with a guy named Sean Gorley who did a TED talk back in 2009 and has since talked about this a couple times. Um, he's a data analysis expert and was talking about how in the future we'll see governments participate in propaganda through social media conversations, which makes perfect sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about how the approach of, you know, making this a grassroots kind of approach benefits the adoption of certain ideas and whether you're trying to sell, you know, a line of clothing or sell the idea of a big, uh, uh, political policy. Oh, well, it totally makes sense. I mean, you will see politicians that, for example, have a, a Twitter account or a Facebook account. I mean, pretty much all of them do now, at mm. least in the United States that I'm aware of. It's rare that you encounter a politician who doesn't have those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have followers, of course, who are people who they can count on to be ideologically and perhaps even just culturally or socially uh, in line with them. Sure. And then they can selectively report the things they want to report on their feed on Facebook and say like, hey, here's a news I- uh, item that's flattering to me and the things I support. And then they know that their followers will share that with their friends and comment on it positively. It's a very, uh, it's a very productive venue, we might say. Right. And it gets even creepier than that because Gordley's point was that we can use data analysis to Identify trends before they really take off. So let's say, for example, that, uh, Lauren, you're a politician. Sure. And let's say that the data analysis has shown that there is an, uh, a, a growing, but not huge public opinion that is counter to your, uh, strategies. It's counter to your philosophy. Oh no. What am I going to do about it? You, through that analysis, you discover the best ways to create counter stories to insert them into the conversation and thus head this off before it becomes a big trend. So it's the same idea as creating counterintelligence or counter propaganda that has dated back ever since we started talking about propaganda, but doing so on a, on a scale that's much more, um, Precise in the sense that you are deter- you're detecting these things before they even become noticeable on a wide scale basis. So you're actually talking about using big data to examine things like public opinion and be able to try and influence it before it becomes like a conscious part of the public conversation. Oh, wow. Yeah. And because so much of our activity takes place on platforms that are largely public. Uh, not all of us do, obviously, but if you happen to have a publicly readable Twitter feed uh, or a publicly readable Facebook page or some other social platform, then that, that information can be gleaned by a, a device that really like a, a web crawler mm-hmm. that's looking for keywords to start doing things like data analysis to see what kind of opinions are coming up and how best to either uh, either encourage those opinions or suppress them. You know, another thing I can see very much is personalized propaganda. Like, uh, so like personalized, uh, advertising. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, much the same way that the, the ads you get on Facebook are determined by what some kind of algorithm has figured out you might be interested in. Yeah. Boy, are they way off too. They can me. probably also figure, yeah, I've gotten some really bizarre ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've gotten some bizarre ones and I've gotten some very sharp ones as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'm sure that they'll be able to also figure out, hey, you know, we can do some tests and figure out that people who have these same seven interests that you do are much more strongly affected by X type of propaganda than by Y approach. Sure. Yeah, it can be, you know, especially like they look at Activity, let's take Facebook, for example, the things that you've hit like versus the things that you, you know, you might have looked at, but you didn't really end up engage uh, with further. Yeah. Then that could end up giving more information. I mean, there's a lot of data there. I mean, just 
assuming that someone, let's just take Facebook itself, for example, let's say that Facebook actually looks at how long things typically stay in your view when you are active on Facebook, which they do. They know which which stories you are looking at versus which ones you're just scrolling past. They know how to serve that stuff up to you. Yeah. And they know how long you're looking at your ex's profile. They do. Uh, They know whether you've clicked through news articles, uh, clicked through two news articles, I should say. And so this kind of stuff can shape how they present information to you. Everything from just making Facebook more effective, which you could argue is, oh, well, that's okay because we want whatever we're using to be the best experience possible to presenting the kinds of stuff you are most likely to act upon in an advertising capacity. So the ways that Facebook would make money, you know, the the fact that you would be more likely to click on this stuff that which depending on your point of view, either benefits everyone or is super creepy, right? Because it either means that you are going to not waste your time on stuff that doesn't matter to you. And maybe you'll discover things that actually do matter to you. But on the other hand, it's like, well, Facebook's telling me what I should like. Now, ideally, I know that I'm always going to be encountering propaganda, advertising, etc. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to avoid that. I mean, it's not like that's going to go away. Uh, I don't think we're going to have a future where magically everyone says, you know what? I'm not going to try to get people to do the things I would like them to do. That's sure. just, that's not going to happen. No, so, not unless you go, you know, totally off the grid. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If I end up getting a log cabin someplace and just cut ties with everybody, which uh, I don't think I could do. I'm not good at chopping wood. So the <laughs> the the key here is that you want to get as much access to as many different sources of information as possible. Knowing that everyone has their agenda, even if it's something like their agenda is to try and create an unbiased, objective approach, we're humans. So sometimes that just doesn't happen, and not even on a conscious basis. But our ability to access as many different sources of information as possible at least gives us the opportunity to have as close to an objective view as possible. So that that's something that some of us have the luxury of because we live in a place where we can have unrestricted access to information. Uh, and we furthermore have the type of lifestyle that allows us to spend time perusing that sort of information. Exactly. So we're doubly privileged in that sense. But then you also have to take into account that human beings can be really lazy. And since we're lazy, then it means that we also have a responsibility to overcome that laziness and seek this stuff out because it's it's, it's just as possible to have a society, a culture that has free access to all this stuff, at least on a, you know, on one level, like a hypothetical level, but through practice, no one bothers to do it. And so you end up, you don't have to worry about them accessing multiple sources of information. You can send out whatever messages you want. So, um, just something to keep in mind. I think, I think most of our listeners are probably the type who go seeking information from as many sources as possible just to, you know, get a really good view of what's happening. It doesn't mean that you agree with all of them or any of them. Even. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would be disturbed if you agreed with information from all of your sources. Yeah, I, that would be back to double think again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think we're, we're pretty much wrapping it up for this first part here. But you should definitely tune in next time, because next time we're going to get into the crazy territory of persuasive technology, moral enhancement. When is it maybe right to use mind control? What color makes you do things? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, all of that and more in our next episode. And yeah, it's some really interesting stuff that I did not know before I started researching for for these episodes about what specifically people are doing uh, to, to, to use these, our modern technologies, to propagate propaganda. Yeah, and to just, in some cases... Just try to make the world a better place. But that kind of that kind of approach is whose idea of better. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not all not all pigs are equal. (laughs) Wait, what? I guess all pigs are equal, but some are more equal than others. Some are more equal than others. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you you know, different Orwell. Same idea. Yeah. Yeah. Why? That wasn't in 1984. 
What about bacon? Okay, I'm getting confused. Or, gonna... well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can... <laughs> That's where I was going to go. Yeah, you can let us know. You can send us an email. Our address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or drop us a line on Facebook, on Twitter, or on Google+. At Twitter and Google+, we are fwthinking. Just search fwthinking on Facebook. We'll pop up. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, you got comments, you got questions, send those to us. We look forward to hearing from you, and you'll hear from us again... For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today business it's all the things that keep this world turning and behind every one of these companies is a partner helping to keep it all moving it's why the local flower shop and your favorite pizza joint the startup in the stadium hospitals and hotels banks and restaurants nationwide all choose the advanced network cybersecurity solutions and round-the-clock trusted partnership from comcast business the company that powers more businesses than anyone else comcast business powering possibilities restrictions apply call or visit comcastbusiness.com to learn more